So as I said, we are in the, uh, the book of Exodus. We have been in the book of Exodus now. This is our 84th week in the book of Exodus. I know that sounds like a long time, but it is, is not, is it, who thinks it's been awesome? Dude, I'm telling you, Exodus has been just a barnstorm. I have loved it, loved it. I've never seen it the way I see it. It is just incredible to see what God's done. So as we've been working through the book of Exodus, now this, this whole study has been called The Great Escape. I give you the picture of the fact that as the Israelites, what happened with them, right? They were in bondage to sin or they were in bondage to slavery, okay? And what we do is we find out in the Old Testament, Old Testament is filled with pictures of New Testament concepts that are shown to us in picture in the Old Testament. So when we look at the believer, you and I are in bondage to sin as in the part of this world, right? We're born into sin. So here we have the Israelites are a picture of the individual believer. They are in bondage to slavery. They have a taskmaster named Pharaoh who is a picture of Satan. And there is, they are in bondage to this slavery. You and I are in bondage to sin. Then what happens is God sends a deliverer by way of a man named Moses who's a picture of Jesus. And what does he do? He draws them out of their bondage and he brings them out. Then they enter the wilderness. And that's where we are now. We're in the wilderness. You are in the wilderness, man. You see, you know what? And the wilderness is tough. And we watch the Israelites. They have good days and bad days. They have days of faith and they have days of failure. Who can relate? That's us, right? So we're them in the midst of the wilderness. And then what God's done in the midst of the wilderness is he's created them a tabernacle, right? He has them working on it. So as we've been working through these weeks, and this is all about communing with God, right? They're trying to reach the promised land. The promised land is the abundant Christian life. That's that life where we have intimacy with God. So we get a picture of that here in the tabernacle. And what God did was it's all about restoring intimacy. And we've watched with these, these contractors that have been working at the bottom of the mountain. Bezalel is the leader. And they've been working at the base of the mountain to build this tabernacle. And they've worked through the outer structure. Okay, so we've seen them do all the coverings and all the structure to it. And in that, we saw lots of pictures. God shows us all kinds of amazing things. And we've seen humanity pictured in that outer structure. We've seen Christ himself pictured in that outer structure. We've seen the plan of God for salvation for the, in this outer structure. Then what's happened is we moved inside. And last week, we, as I said, we had the arcs of God. And in the arcs of God, we talked about three different arcs. And we looked at the parallel between those three different arcs. First, we had Noah's Ark, right? We looked at Noah's Ark and the picture that's shown in Noah's Ark, which is a picture of deliverance. It's an amazing, amazing thing. I don't have time to go into it. Go back and watch the message if you haven't seen it. Then we talked about Moses' Ark, right? Moses' Ark, which was the thing that he was found in, that little ark that saved him, right? That protected him from destruction. Another picture of God's deliverance. And then we had the Ark of the Covenant. And we walked through that and we saw the amazing pictures of that. So then what's going to happen? So this week... We're inside the tabernacle. What we're going to do is we're going to step outside of the veil, okay? As we step outside of the veil, we're going to enter in. We're leaving the Holy of Holies where the, tab where the uh, Ark of the Covenant is, where the mercy seat is. That's the intimate presence of God. We're stepping outside of the veil. In this outer room, which is called the holy place, what we're going to see is there are going to be three different pieces of furniture in there. There's one, which is called the altar of incense. There's another called the table of showbread. And there's another called the golden candlestick. Those three pieces of furniture are in that, that place. And each one has its own unique and really incredible story. But today, we're going to focus on just one. We're going to focus on that table. Okay, our message today is called the table of God. Let's pray for this message. Lord, I thank you, God, for so much for, first of all, speaking to my heart. Uh, Lord, if today is, uh, as I preach it, uh, Lord, if I'm the only one that receives anything from it, I thank you, Lord, because you have certainly spoken to me through it. I have cried over this message, Lord, already, having never even preached it. And God, I do pray that you'll help me today. Uh, Lord, to preach with power. God, I pray that you allow the Spirit of God to take over. And Lord, this not be something from me, but Lord, it will be from you. And Lord, that I could just, if I could just disappear. And that Lord, as if no one sees me at all, God, I would love it if you would just show up and take over. God, you've spoken to me. I now ask that you would speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, Exodus chapter number 37 is where we're going to be. We're going to be in verses 10 through 16, okay? Verses 10 through 16, Exodus 37. Verse 10 says this, And he made the table of shittim wood. Two cubits was the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. So we see here in this scripture, you notice that it's referenced just as the table, okay? Now this is no average table as we're going to find out, but right now we see it only listed as the table. This table is about three feet long, it's about a foot and a half deep, and it's about two and a quarter feet tall. So it's not a very substantial table. And its formal name is the table of showbread. Now, where do we get that name from? If you go to Exodus chapter number 25, verse 30, it tells us what this table's purpose is. Exodus 25, 30 says this, And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. Now, these are God's instructions. So this is prior to it being constructed. This is when God's telling them how they're going to build it. What's also interesting is if you go back into Exodus chapter, number, in chapter 25 and you go back to verse number 23, there's the very first time the word table shows up in Scripture. Now, the word tables has shown up plenty of times before that. When you see tables, that's always referring to tables of stone, okay? This table here is the very first time a piece of furniture called a table is listed in Scripture. Now, what's interesting about a table is it has great significance and different significances, and we're going to look at them right here. But first of all, I want you to think about a table that we're familiar with, right? A table with food. Anybody else like to eat? Man, I'm telling you what. I'm, people go, I just eat because it's fuel. I'm like, I don't understand that at all. I love the smell of food. I love the taste of food. I love the feel of food. I'm like, I like it on my face. I like it on my hands. I love food. I mean, I love to eat. I mean, I absolutely, I'm going to get outside, sidetracked if I don't stop talking about food. Carnival Eats, my favorite show on TV. I'm just saying, that's all I'm going to say. Else. That's it. But what happens is we have tables, right? And what happens with a table of food, that's a place of fellowship, right? We sit down to have a meal. Boy, we're, this is a place where there's trust, there's, there's friendship, right? This is a place where we sit down and we have a place of agreement. Now, what happens is we've had this aspect of, as David, and I'm going to give you an example of what a table represents spiritually. David, King David, when he was not King David, he was under a king named Saul. And what happened with Saul was Saul persecuted David. He actually wanted to kill him. He threw a javelin at his head, all kinds of stuff. So David was on the run, and he treated him horribly. Now, in this, the standard of the day would be that once a kingdom fell and a new king took over, all the lineage of that previous king would be killed because they didn't want to have a threat that they would rise up against them, okay? So I want you to understand, that's kind of the setting where we're at. Now, I want you to look at 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. King David is very different than the other king before him. And David said, is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul? Now, we look at that person, we're like, oh, man, he's going to wipe him out. That's what they always did. He's going to wipe him out. But what does he say? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So not to punish him, he actually says, look, I want to honor him. And what's interesting is Jonathan, who he mentions, that's Saul's son. Okay? Now, Jonathan and David were very close friends, and Saul was still trying to kill him. And David, Jonathan was like, look, man, you know, don't, don't do this. But what eventually happens is Saul ends up dying in battle, so does Jonathan. And David, because of his love for his friend and because he wants to honor the Lord, he says, look, is there anybody that we can find? And he finds this servant, and his name is Ziba, that's in the house. And he says, Ziba, are there any of the lineage left? And he's like, well, Lord, you know, king, I don't know. Let me see what I can do. And he finds one, and his name is Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. What if that was your name in kindergarten, the first time you had to learn how to spell that bad boy? <laughs> okay, Mephibosheth, come up and spell your name on the board. Oh, brother. <laughs> That'd be a hard one, right? That's not a, <laughs> a tough name. Don't name your child that. That seems pretty, pretty challenging. So Mephibosheth, right? So what happens, Mephibosheth is a, is a lame person. He's, he can't walk. And they find him in this household, and David says, well, bring him to the kingdom. So Mephibosheth doesn't know what's going on. He's scared. 
So when he's called before the king, he falls on his face and he says, I'm here as your servant. He's like, oh, please don't kill me. And what does David say in verse seven? And David said unto him, fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father. He says, look, not only am I not going to punish you, but I'm actually going to give you back the land of your father, your grandfather. I'm going to bless you. And look at the last part. He says, thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. So the picture of restoration, the picture of honor, the picture of fellowship is a table, right? It's clearly stated there. Listen to this as Jesus, right? As Jesus speaks to his disciples, listen to this. Now, we've all heard the term kind of break bread, and we know that that comes from this concept. Luke twenty-two thirty 30 says this, that ye may eat and drink at my table. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, look, this is a place of fellowship, a place of trust, and a place of honor, right? That's what a table pictures Old Testament wise. Now, in these ancient accounts, as well as in our day, right? We sit down and have a meal with somebody because there's a fellowship there. There is a trust there. There is an honor there. We don't traditionally sit down with our enemies. You go, man, I hate that guy. Let's invite him for dinner. (laughs) Not normally, right? When somebody sits down at a table with people they don't like, it's called a negotiating table, right? We're trying to bring a peace treaty. So what we're doing is this table is still a symbol of peace, but it may not be peace yet. But the reason why they sit down at the table is to create a relationship of trust. So in all these occasions, we see here a table is either a place of establishing trust or it's a place of celebration. We think about this when we go on our first date. Now, when, you, when my wife and I go for our celebration of our anniversary and on, on April 19th, when we go and do that, guess what? We are celebrating the trust and the fellowship that we have. But on our first date at Justin's Cafe in Raleigh, North Carolina, she wasn't long going, man, I just trust him and think he's the most wonderful thing in the world. She's like, hmm, what does he want? What are his plans, right? What happened to that dinner, that table, as I'm trying to establish trust with her? Hey, I'm real. I really do love you. I really think you're awesome, right? And so what happens? That's the same thing. So we see these pictures, right? But there's another table. If we think about it, there's another table that comes to mind when we think about the Lord, right? Now, there's something we know as terminology, or terminology we know the Last Supper, right? The Last Supper. Now, so what we look at, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples. This is just before his crucifixion. He's sitting down with them to have a fellowship meal to honor, right? The Passover, but he's actually going to change it. He's going to share with them, hey, look, we're no longer talking about something that's to come. What I'm getting ready to let you know is this meal we're having right here, this is actually being fulfilled as we speak, right? So what happens here, listen to this. This is Luke, not, this is Luke 22, verses 19 through 21, as Jesus sits down with his disciples and understand that this fellowship, this trust is going to be betrayed. 1921 or 22:19 says this, and he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, "This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me." Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you." But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table, the defiling of that trust. Judas is going to get up from this table and he's going to go directly to the Pharisees and he's going to sell out the Lord Jesus Christ from this table. John gives us the same account from his perspective in John 13, verses 26 to 28. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now, no man at the table knew for what intent he spake unto him. 
So this betrayal is taking place right here at the table, the Last Supper. And what it does is it points to the Lord's sacrifice. This is a gateway to the sacrifice. And that shows us another significant reason why tables are listed in Scripture. There is a, another aspect of them. They are not only seen as a table or a place of fellowship, but they're also seen as an altar, an altar of sacrifice. If you go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel had a vision in Ezekiel 40, verses 39 through 43. And listen to what Ezekiel talks about as he sees the temple in this vision. Verse 39. And in the porch of the gate were two tables on this side and two tables on that side to slay thereon the burnt offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. Verse 40. And at the same and at the side without as one goeth up to the entry to the north gate and were two tables and on the other side, which was on the porch of the gate, were two tables. Four tables were on the side and four tables on that side by the side of the gate. Eight tables wherein they slew their sacrifices. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering of a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and one cubit high. Whereupon also they laid the instruments wherewith they slew the burnt offering and sacrifice. Do we see a thing? I mean, this, this is a place where they're killing things. And within were hooks and in hand broad fastened round about. And upon the tables were the flesh of the offering. Ezekiel 41, 22. Listen to this. It qualifies it yet again. It says, the altar of wood was three cubits high. So it closed on an altar and the length thereof, two cubits and the corners thereof and the length thereof and the walls thereof were of wood. And he said unto him, this is the table that is before the Lord. So he says, this altar of sacrifice is in fact the table of the Lord. So we can see here that a, ta that a table is a place of fellowship, no doubt about it. It is a place of trust, no doubt about it, but it is also a place of sacrifice. Does everybody see that? Pretty straightforward. So now we look at it very more specifically. Let's look at that table. Verse number 11 of Exodus 37. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made thereunto a crown of gold round about. I have a picture of it to kind of show you. It is exciting. This, so this gives us an idea of a, an artist. They don't, we don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's gold and it's got stuff on it, right? So this is following those same requirements. It gives you kind of a visual image of what we're talking about. So as we went, now just like the Ark of the Covenant, right? We talked about with the Ark, the fact that it was wood and it was gold combined. That was the corrupt of humanity combined with the deity of God represented in the gold. That's a picture of God and man, which we also see in this table of showbread. We also see here that it has a crown on it. It says here that it has a crown. Now that crown is another, that's again pointing to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ that we talked about last week. But this, the ark, remember, was in the Holy of Holies. Now this showbread table, this table of showbread, this is going to be on the other side. I have another image I'm going to show you real quick, just to give you an idea of kind of where it's at. So if we look here, this is the Holy of Holies. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the altar of incense. Here's the table of showbread, and here's the golden candlestick. So this is the outer area. This is in the tabernacle proper. That is going to be the, what's called the holy place. That's where we are at this point. Now, later on, we're going to see that the placement is really, really cool, and it's really important because every fine detail throughout this tabernacle, where things are sitting, what they're made of, every single thing is teaching something spiritual. It is a picture. It is phenomenal, as we'll look through this, and we will see what it's all about. It's talking about the fact that Jesus is, in fact, not only in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, but also in the holy place. And guess what? He's also going to be outside because the, the, the tabernacle's got three different sections. It's got the Holy of Holies, it's got the holy place, and then there's what's called the, the outer court. And what's really cool is if we think about Jesus Christ, understand that he is the God to the lost, right? To the lost that come to the brazen altar and the outside to establish a relationship with God. He is their God. 
But guess what? He's also a God to those that will be in the holy place, those that are in fellowship with him, right? That the showbread table pictures us. And then guess what? He's also the God to the Christian who is intimately in close, loving communion with God. He is all three. Again, threes. God loves threes. They're just all over the place. Every single week, we're going to see that. So we see that aspect of that. So this table of showbread, it is a place of fellowship. It is a place of sacrifice. We see that pictured. Verse number 12 says this. Also, he made thereunto a border of an handbreadth round about and made a crown of gold for the border thereof round about. And he cast for it four rings of gold and put the rings upon the four corners that were in the four feet thereof. So just like the ark, these rings, remember we talked about the fact that those rings represent eternity. They're a picture of eternity. Then we find also, again, it says here, over against the border were the rings, the places of the staves to bear the table. Now, the staves are the long wooden poles, right? And those poles would be slid into the rings, and they would pick up this table. They weren't supposed to carry it around a manhandle it. They're supposed to carry it by the staves. Now, with the ark, the staves always stayed in place. They wanted to make absolutely certain that no one ever touched the ark. Now, this table was to be touched. They were going to be dealing with it every week. So what happens? These staves were made to be removed. This table was a matter of functionality. It was not to be set aside as the ark was. So we see here that there's some little bit of differences. It is very key that there's further insight that we're going to gain here on the table as we look at Exodus 25, verses 29 through 30. Because we look at what's what the table's about, and it's going to give us an explanation. He's also going to tie to us what this table's going to have on it. Verse number 25, verses 29 through 30 says this, And thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers thereof, and bowls thereof, to cover withal of pure gold shalt thou make them. And thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me alway. So he says, here is the purpose to this table, right? So we see what's pictured in the table itself. Now we're going to see what's pictured upon the table and why that's relevant as well. So the purpose was to display loaves of showbread. So what is showbread? Everybody thinks about food. We're all going, man, I wonder if it tastes good. Hmm. Try some little showbread. We don't know. I don't necessarily know what showbread tastes like, but we're going to talk about that. But we're going to get to showbread in just a minute. We're not quite there yet. Let's go to verse number 16. And he made the vessels which were upon the table, his dishes and his spoons and his bowls and his covers to cover withal of pure gold. What we see here is we just read the instructions that God gave, right? And we see here that Bezalel and his men have followed word for word. They have followed exactly what they were told to make. They have made the exact same things. And what's going to find, what we're going to find is the meticulous detail with which, with which these men followed exactly what God told them. See, it was the meticulous uh, adherence to the directives of God that would allow them the intimacy that they're seeking, right? They want to be with God and God wants to be with them. So they're doing exactly what God asks of them. And if we have uh, eyes to see, if we have eyes to see and we were to look at the Bible, we would understand that the directives that God is giving in this scripture, if we follow them meticulously, guess what? It's all about intimacy with God. It's about drawing us to him. So we see in these guys, by the fact that they're meticulously doing what they're doing and they're following God's instructions, they're going to get the result that they're hoping for. It's all about sanctification. It's all about holiness. That's what this whole structure is going to be about. And everything that's going to be designed, every ceremony that's going to be followed is all based upon that end. That's what this is all focused on, okay? So then God gives us directives. He's given us instructions. It's our job to see them for what God has for us. But are we in fact 
given, uh, they are in fact given to us to allow us to be sanctified from the rest of the world to be holy. Now, this is key. John 17, 14 through 20. This is dealing with us in the church age. Listen to this, okay? I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Remember, this is about sanctification and holiness. And they are not of the world. To be sanctified means set apart, even as I am not of the world. Talking about believers. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. I don't want you to remove them out of the world. I don't want you to take them completely out of it, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil, okay? That's God's desire for us. We're in this world. God says, look, if it was your time to leave, I'd take you out of here. People think, well, I got saved. I'm all done. No, if you're all done, God would just go ahead and take you home. He's saying, look, I want you to stay here, but I want you to not be sucked into the world around you because guess what? I need you to be taken out of the evil. That means you're to be sanctified. You're to be holy amongst an unholy generation. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify, take, set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He says, use the scripture to change their hearts, to draw them out of the things of the world. Help them see what's evil for what it is and help them to see what's right and what's righteous. Help them to be drawn away from it. As thou hast seen me, has sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set the example that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Verse 20, neither I pray for these alone. This is Jesus speaking, man. This is Jesus in the garden praying to God, man, with a broken heart. And listen to what he says. He's not just praying for the disciples. Listen to what he says. Speaking into eternity to you and I, he says this. But he says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. As they will faithfully speak the truth and generationally it will pass from person to person to person to person. Guess what? I'm praying for them as well. The same thing, that they not be drawn into the world, that they be sanctified from the world, kept from the evil of this world. But the evil of this world, boy, it wants to infiltrate us. It wants to poison us. We are surrounded by it every day. We see it in the streets of our cities, evil. We see it in, the, in, in communication with people online, evil, hateful speech, the evil of this world. And he says, you're supposed to be sanctified from that. Meaning as Christians, should I be in a chat room blasting people back and forth and telling them what I think? No, that's not my job. My job is to love them. Me pointing fingers and telling people why they're wrong is not the solution. Me loving them is the solution. Me showing them what it means to be long-suffering and patient. To be patient means to be patient with the situation. The word long-suffering, that means you're being patient with a person. You're long-suffering. You ever deal with somebody who just, you're like, oh, my word, how much longer? <laughs> Jesus said about the disciples, he says, how much longer must I suffer, you guys? Jeepers, creepers, driving me crazy. And there are people, sometimes with our, own, our children. How many times do I have to tell you? For goodness sakes, have we not had this conversation a hundred times? Guess what that is? Long-suffering. And that's God with us, because guess what? We're a bunch of knuckleheads. It's just the truth. Our Savior prayed for our sanctification because he knew it was so vital. Leviticus 20, verse 26 says this, And ye shall be holy unto me. Listen. For I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. I have severed you. I've separated you. I've pulled you out from this crowd that you might be different. The Bible says we're supposed to be a peculiar person. I should not look like the world. I should not sound like the world. I should not act like the world. I should act like God has instructed me through his word. So as children of God, we should be sanctified from the corruption of this world in our walk, in our holiness with God. 
Our, well, now, understand, with our humanity, this is impossible. If you try to do it in your flesh, quit now. It's going to do nothing more than frustrate you. But there's good news. Mark 10, 27 tells us good news. Jesus, looking unto them, saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Amen. He says, look, you're not going to do this in your strength. You're not going to pull this off. Just know you're a failure. You're, you're the mess. And if God looks at us, understand, we've got to realize, if you come here with pride thinking you're something special, God sees us all for what we are, a bunch of sinners. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. We've all dropped the ball. We've all messed up. And we all need the Lord. And that's why the, the law was given. What is the law given? Why does the Bible show us what it does? Because it's to reveal our sin to us. If you don't know you're a sinner, then you cannot know that you need a Savior. So the Scripture tells us, hey, guess what? This is who you are. It reflects back our sin. And we go, whoa, I need, a, I need somebody. I can't do this on my own. With God, all things are possible. Our holiness and sanctification are key not only to our walk, but the fact that God can use us for his glory. God's desire for us, as I said, we're not here just to exist. We're here because God's supposed to use us. Our relationship and intimacy with God depends upon it. Every layer of instruction we will see in this entire thing, everything we're going to study through this entire book of Revelation or through Exodus is showing us that God's saying, I'm trying to sanctify you. I'm trying to restore you. I'm trying to take you out of this broken world so that I can use you. We talked about it last week, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 through 18. says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Through our, through our sanctification, man, guess what we do? We get to climb into the lap of our father. We get to cuddle up in his arms. And feel his presence. John, when he was at the Last Supper, the Bible says that he laid his head, his chest, upon the on the chest of God. He laid his head on the chest of God. And what would he hear? The heartbeat of God. Imagine that. The heartbeat of God, the Creator. And what he's saying is, you know what? If you'll come to me, I will gather you up. And the closer you get to me, and the more intimate our relationship becomes, you're going to start to hear something. The heartbeat of God. And it's going to draw you to be more godly. And as the world calls out to you, the closer we got, get to God, man, that heartbeat can drown out the world. What if we lived every day? And you were so sold out to God that all you heard was the heartbeat of God pounding in your ears. And it motivated you to do what you would not otherwise do, to step away from this world and with love reach out to people that don't deserve love. That's what God does. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> and you know what's amazing? And it's unfortunate because there's been more than one time that I've counseled with people you say, you know, Pastor, I don't understand why I just can't feel like I get, I just don't get as close to God as I want to. I just can't reach. I hear you talk about it, but you know what? I just can't get there. And after asking a few questions and doing a little bit of digging, what we find out is, now, remember, the Israelites are strictly adhering to God's directives. Mm -hmm. And as you find out this person, 
They're not strictly adhering to the directives of God. In fact, they're standing in defiance of them, yet they want the blessing. See, we live in a world where everybody wants to have their cake and eat it too, right? Everybody wants to eat all they want to and find some magic pill that'll make you skinny, right? Is there a workout, like a six-minute workout I could do once a month that would keep me, like, svelte? I'd love to have, like, a, a, an eight-pack, an eight you know what I'm saying? And can I also eat donuts, because I love donuts, right? That's what we want. And the Lord's saying, you know what? Hey. And it's, it's, it's as if they're asking me, hey, can I just have both? Could I just find a way to have as much world as I want and have as much God as I want? And can I just get the fellowship that I want? Can I just get that sense of feeling like I'm really, I'm really with God? And, you know, thankfully, I don't have to answer that question because Jesus does for me. Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon means the world. He says you cannot serve God and serve the world. You must choose. In the book of Revelation, chapter number 3, he says, he says, be hot or be cold. The problem is, in the Laodicean church ages, is where we live right now. We are lukewarm. And the result is, he spews us out of his mouth. He says, look, you disgust me. You disgust me. I'd rather you be totally cold and turn your back on me and live as a heathen than to be halfway in. Because what happens with people that are lukewarm, they know just enough Bible to be destructive. Praise Jesus! Hey, man, pass me a beer. Right? They got one foot in and one foot out. And everyone who's watching them who goes, aren't you a Christian? Yeah, man. Blank this! Whoa. They're just like everybody else. And all of a sudden, your testimony is the thing that's taking people to hell because you can't walk with God. We can't walk with God. I'm not pointing fingers. I make mistakes just like everybody else. We all fail. But that's the struggle that we're in. And God's saying, look, this is about sanctification. This is about being holy. This is about the relationship with God that lets you feel his heartbeat. Instead of feeling distant from God, guess what? That distance is not by God's choice. He's calling you. He's calling you to him. Remember verse 16, it said this, and he made the vessels which were upon the table. And I want you to notice this. His dishes, his spoons, his bowls, and his covers to cover with all of pure gold. It's not talking about Bezalel. He's not the his. He doesn't own these things. He is making them to go on the table. The table actually has a pronoun his in it. How cool is it that he's making it for his vessels? I'm sure that's purely a coincidence. But as you asked me before, what is showbread? That was a great question, by the way. Let me answer it. Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. And thou shalt take fine flour, bake 12 cakes thereof, two tenth deals shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows of six on a row upon the pure table. Notice the word pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense. Frankincense is a representation of deity upon each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons. They shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto, unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire for perpetual fire for, for, for perpetual state. What this is saying is, look, every week they're going to swap out new bread. And when they take out that showbread, Aaron and his sons are not going to go out and just eat it like a snack while they're walking down the street, I don't know, snacking. No, they're going to be in the place, the holy place, that reverential, sanctified place where they're going to consume that bread. 
That bread is a picture of something. Let's take a look at it. John, uh, John chapter 6 says this in verses 36, 33 through 35. For the bread, this is Jesus speaking, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Verse 34, then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Verse 47 through 48, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. The bread that I will give him, give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So when you, guess what? When you have, when we do the Lord's Supper here, we are remembering the fact that we have received the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. This is in remembrance of what he has done in that bread and in that cup. Jesus is pictured in the bread. But let's take it a step further in Matthew 4, 4. Jesus said this, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He's making a comparison between physical food, physical bread and spiritual food, the word of God. He's giving us a direct comparison. Look at this. Jeremiah 5, 16. Thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. The consumption of the word is not merely about spiritually nourishing us. It's not just that. There's another component to it as well. It's about us sharing it. Ezekiel 3, verses 3 through 4. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll. A roll is a scroll. This is the word of God that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Verse 4, And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. Share the good news, what you have consumed, what is now a part of you. Tell someone else. Tell them the words of God. Now, there's another distinction which is interesting about this word. is the fact that it's not always just about the pleasant taste. It's not always just about the fact that it's sweet. Because does the word comfort us? Absolutely. But guess what it also does? It convicts us. Because sometimes we read the word and we're like, man, yeah, woo, yeah. Other times you read it and you're like, oh, man, dang, that's a little uncomfortable. And remember, this is Paul's exhortation to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says this, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering." Okay, so reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those first two are negatives. Those are not positives. That first one says, hey, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to confront sin. Confront sin. Then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to expose sin. And then exhort, what do you do there? Well, guess what? Now I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you in dealing with this sin. So two out of three are negatives. It's confrontational. Because, understand, Revelations 10.10, listen to this. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, this is John, and ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey, just like Ezekiel. Man, it was sweet. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Guys, sometimes the truth that we read in the Word, man, it goes down easy. Mm-mm-mm. But then once it settles in, sometimes it becomes a little uncomfortable. Perfect example, forgiveness. I read about forgiveness, man, yes, forgive, 
that's me, I'm a forgiver. But then someone comes in your life and they wrong you. I mean, they wrong you as bad as somebody can wrong you. And they walk away, they never even address it. They don't even recognize that it's wrong. And they wrong you again. And then all of a sudden that idea of forgiving. Mm, how's it feel in your belly? Oh, I'm a little bitter. That's <laughs> uh, not settling so well. Oh, hard to keep down this mm, forgiveness. Yeah? Difficult. Sweet when you read it, but when you apply it sometimes, not quite as easy. The application of the word is sometimes very, very difficult. So we see that not only Christ is pictured in this bread, but check as he describes himself, but check this out also as we look at the bread pictured in truth. Remember in Leviticus 24, it talked about the showbread was in two rows, right? Two rows of six. That makes 66. How many books are in the Bible? 66 books. I'm sure that's purely a coincidence. But the bread pictures our Lord and it also pictures the word. Isn't it interesting? John 1 verses 1 through 14. We see that Jesus refers to himself and shows and proves that he is the word, right? He is the word. So Jesus is the word. And then we find God's word, the truth, right? In John 14, 6, the word is the truth. We see that again and again and again. And Jesus describes himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, right? So he says, look, I am these three. So the bread is picturing the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's also picturing the word. It is our spiritual food, it is our spiritual food. It's what we're supposed to be nourishing ourselves with. We're supposed to be feeding upon this truth. We're supposed to be feeding ourselves God's word. And if we honestly look at the depth of the word, my goodness gracious, there's no denying that this book is supernatural. Every issue of this life, there is an answer to the existence of, of humanity in this book. There is nothing that you deal with that you cannot find the answer to. And if you don't believe that's true, then you have not looked. There are a lot of people who go, ah, it's just stories. It's just that. It's just that. Guys, I'm telling you what. This is a supernatural book written for the development of the saint. And the directives, if you will follow them, you can find the sanctification of God. You can find the holiness of God. You can experience the intimacy with God. You can experience that abundant life. But it's not easy. It takes work. Amen. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, the God says. Now, there's no issue that we cannot find. But humanity today, the problem is not access to the truth. It's not it. It's our willingness to hear it. There's plenty of truth. Problem is, we don't want to hear it. Paul's exhortation did not stop in 2 Timothy chapter number 4. In 2 verse 4, he says this when he continued in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Boy, that sounds like today. Sound doctrine. Doctrine just simply means teaching. He says, the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching. But after their own lusts shall keep, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. It does not say preachers. Because guess what? You can teach and there'll be no preaching in it whatsoever. The design, what God says with preaching, preaching is supposed to exhort, it's supposed to challenge, it's supposed to draw us, it's supposed to bring change. So there's plenty of teaching without preaching. But there can be preaching with teaching. But you know, there's so many people out there that are teaching the word. And what is this? Informational instead of transformational. People walk away going, yeah, I got this. I got that. I learned this. I learned that. But is their life changed? It's changed through the preaching of the word of God. The Bible says the foolishness of preaching. 
So I'm, I'm not here with my authority. I'm not telling you, if you were coming to David for any help, you're in sorry trouble because I am not an authority on anything. I am bad at pretty much all things that I do. But I'm telling you what, there is authority in this book and that is what I'm preaching to you. I'm preaching to you the truth of this book, man. The authority is the fact that it comes from God. And if we listen to him, instead of putting it aside, it can change our lives. Amen. It can truly transform us. And people sit there and we're just so happy with where we're at. We're so comfortable with where we sit. We think there's something special about us. Understand, why do people come to this church, get convicted in a message, and never come back? Happens all the time. Nice to me. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Nice to meet you too. See ya. Right? It happens. Why do people find a priority that's more important than church? Why do people have a Bible but not read it? Why do people have access to the God of the universe and not pray to him? Because they're following their own lusts. Following their own lusts. Verse 4 says this, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Stories. I'm telling you what, this country is full of churches where you can go hear some fantastic stories. And there'll be some scripture sprinkled in here and there, or a passage that's read, and then it turns into this whole story of all these things. Are they applicable? Sure. Are they interesting? Absolutely. Are they good speakers? Phenomenal. Way better than what you're going to get here. But I'm telling you, they'll have great music, they'll have great entertainment, they'll have all this stuff, man, and people will go, good, you know, dude, that was awesome. The story about the train, man, that was awesome. But if you said, what was the scripture it was from? You're like, ah, the train was red. I remember that. <laughs> right? And what happens, they're so caught up with fables. Reason being because they don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the Bible. They don't want to have their feet stepped on. They want to make change in their life. They go, teach me something that I can apply for me because it's not about sanctification to God. It's not about honoring Him. It's about me getting better. It's about me living my best life now. Because that's what this world's about. Remember, it all revolves around me. We're selfish by nature. And these churches, guess what they do? They feed into that nature. It's about feeding one's self. But there's another component in this. And Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God. So God is saying this, that I will send a famine in the land. But listen to what kind of famine it is. Not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There will come a famine in the land. Well, in the Bible, there are 13 famines. Of those famines, 11 of them have already happened. One of those famines is going to take place in the tribulation. And there's one that's going on right now. Hearing the word of God. People sit in messages, and if it's convicting, they don't return. If it tickles their ears, they'll go back because it makes them feel good. It's all about having, it said the Bible says, having itching ears. Just give me a scratch where I feel good. Get that one little spot. But then what about us? We're faithful to church. You're here. We're faithful to pray. Oh, yeah. Every day. Man, we faithfully read the Word of God. But are we growing? That's spiritual nourishment. That's a spiritual food. This is what makes us grow. 
our problem is in our Christianity today is we're comfortable with where we are. I look at myself and I compare it to the world and I go, man, I'm so far much better than they are. Look at, I mean, I'm in church Sunday morning. There's people that are sleeping in right now. Oh, man, look at me. I brought a Bible with me today and I got one at the house and it's not covered with dust. I read it. I prayed this morning. We prayed over dinner last night. Man, I really am doing good. And what happens is we become complacent and we're happy with where we are. But if you were sitting with the Lord at that table and you had a conversation at the end of the day, let's say over the last six weeks, and he said, let's discuss the last six weeks and how sanctified you've been, how holy you've been. Let's run down the list and see how you did. Would that be an uncomfortable conversation? Would be for me. Maybe not you guys, but it would be for me. Because so many times we're not growing. We know what to say, when to say it. We know how to act and how to react without even trying. We just know how to do the Christian thing. It's become a part of who we are. But the problem is, are we growing? We're in the Word of God, but is it challenging us? Are we allowing it to speak to our hearts? See, our world right now is filled with starving people. Starving people. As of 2016, the UNICEF said that there were 815 million people in the world that are starving. Now, at that time, that's about a little over 10% of the population of the world. And that's horrific. If you've ever been to Africa, where we go in Malawi, you see starving people in Malawi. You see people that really are starving. We believe people here are starving. Homeless people are starving. Man, there's so, many, there's so much access to food and so many things here. Poor people here do not know what poor is compared to what the other parts of the world. When I was in India, you see people literally dying of starvation on the street, and people walk over them and step around them, and they let them die. And they come by and pick them up on a cart, and they put them on a cart and take them to the end of the road and throw them in the dump. People are like trash there. Humanity is not valued, yet God loves every one of them. And you got to realize there are starving people all over the world. But let's say that's 10% of the population, 20% of the population. But if you were to compare that to spiritually, and you were to say, how much of the, of the world's population is starving spiritually? I would hazard to guess that it's about 99%. And some people, wow, why so high? Why so high? Reason being, there are good Bible-living churches just like this one. And there are members sitting in those congregations. The examples of Christianity that are malnourished. And there are lots of them that are starving. Not because they don't have food accessible to them. Not because they don't have the Word of God available to them. But because they choose not to eat it. They choose not to receive it. We're supposed to set the example. We read the Bible every day. But why? Why? Are we reading it because we're hungry? Or do we read it because we're supposed to? Consider this. There are people that are on chemotherapy right now. They've got cancer, right? And they're very ill. They don't eat because they're hungry. They eat because they're supposed to. Their body tells them, I don't want food. I have no desire for whatsoever. I only do it because I'm supposed to eat it. And there are Christians that every day sit and read the Bible, not because they're hungry for the Word of God, because they're supposed to read the Word. 
not because they're hungry, only because it's their, their, their job to do it. And they treat it like drudgery. And because of that, guess what? They sit and they read and they starve. You and I have been called to do something great for God. We've been called to stand up for Him. The problem is we don't come to the table hungry. We sit back and we just are happy with where we're at. And I'm not here to beat you up, guys. I'm talking to myself. But understand, this world is starving. And if you're not fed, you cannot tell people how to come to the food. If you're starving, you're not going to go help another starving person. It's the one that finds the food that goes back and goes, Hey, let me show you where this is. Let me show you where you can get nourished. And the burden of my heart is that people sit in church just like us. And we're happy with where we're at. And barely surviving. And having a Christianity that is malnourished and weak. And the world dies around us. And the lost world looks to us for hope. And all they see is a starving person who doesn't stand up for God. The burden of my heart is that we would get on fire for the Lord. And that we would be hungry for the souls of men and women and boys and girls to come to Christ. We'd be hungry for the word of God. We'd be hungry to come to Christ. Guys, the Bible says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Not might be, will be. They shall be filled. God says, look, if you'll come hungry, I will feed you. The problem is we sit back and we go, you know what? I'm not sure I feel like eating. Shame on us. God's done everything he possibly can. He has set the table. He has provided the bread. He has invited us to come. The question is, are we hungry? Are we hungry? And man, if the question is, if the answer to that question is yes, then come. Come to the table of God. He has everything we need if we'll just come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. And God, I thank you for our message. Lord, for the way that you've spoken to us. God, thank you for showing us the pictures of Christ in the table and in the bread. And Lord, as my brothers and sisters are here today, and Lord, I do pray for all of us, that God, that we will focus upon understanding this aspect of this life being about holiness, about honoring God. And Lord, help us to have a hunger in our hearts, a hunger for intimacy, a hunger for closeness, a hunger for truth, a hunger for, for, that, for that aspect of righteousness. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we will this week, we will spend time in your word. And Lord, not for the sake of just doing what we're supposed to, but Lord, we go there with a desire to be fed. Lord, I know that you tell us those that will hunger and thirst and seek after righteousness, that they will be filled. And God, you will. And if there's someone here today and they say, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily how to do, know how to do that. Help us walk. We will walk with you. We will help you. We have discipleship in this church that can help you. We have training that can help you. And if you're here today with our heads bowed and eyes closed and you say, you know, Pastor, I'm hungry, but I don't even know how to eat. I don't know what to do. I feel a hunger in my heart for God. We were all born with a God-shaped void in our heart. And I'm telling you, He right now in this moment is reaching out to you. And that hunger that you feel is for the peace and the love of God and a relationship with Him that is real, not superficial, not religious, but true and real. 
And if you're here today or you're online or wherever you are, you're watching this recorded, whatever it is, understand his call to you is real and that desire you have in your heart can be fulfilled today. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, he has paid the price. He went to the cross for the sins of the world and he offers it to you right now. He said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise, a promise. And as he calls out to you right now, he's asking you to respond. I'm not talking about a religious experience that you've had in the past. I'm talking about a moment in time where you know for a fact that Jesus Christ came into your heart and changed you forever. If you've never experienced that, that day can be today. As he calls out to you in your head, in your mind, in your heart, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. And it's not the words of the prayer that will do anything for you. It is your heart that God is listening to. So if you're sincere and you want to receive Christ as your Savior, He will receive you right where you are. I don't care where you are in the world. Are you watching this recorded? It does not take me. It's not about you and me. It's about you and God. And as I lead you in prayer, if you'll pray this prayer and you mean it with your heart, understand it's not a matter of the words. It's the heart. God's listening to your heart. If you'll pray it with your heart, God will save you right where you are. With their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, pray this prayer with me, calling out to God. Dear Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I am sorry for my sins. I recognize my failure and I see that you are the only way. All things are possible with you. God, I want you to take me from broken and make me whole. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin and save my soul. Lord, I am your child. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.